Hello and welcome to Biopod, the official podcast of the School of Biological Sciences here at the University of Edinburgh. We're here today to talk to you about the microbiology experiment that has been set up to run for 500 years. Afterwards, on the 150th anniversary of the Edinburgh Seven, we'll also be looking back at the life of Crystal Macmillan, the first female science graduate of the University of Edinburgh. For now, let's head on over to our main guest, Dr Toby Samuels, as he sits down with our own Verity Hill to talk about his role in the project, how it will be preserved through time, and what it's like to own pets as a postgraduate. Hi everyone, I'm here today with Dr Toby Samuels to talk about his work on the 500 year microbe experiment. So, first off, tea or coffee? Um, I chose tea because if I drink coffee directly before this, I think I'd have been a bit too all over the place. So I decided tea was a little more calming. So can you tell us a bit about what is the 500 year microbe experiment? Yeah, so put simply, in physical terms, it is two wooden oak chests. And inside those chests are glass vials containing desiccated microbes of two different species. And over the next 500 years, small subsets of those vials are going to be opened and the number of living or viable cells will be determined by growing them on agar. And if we know how many viable cells started in the vials, which we do, then over the next 500 years, we can track how viability is lost over time. So why do we care about viability over time? Um... We're interested in microbes that are dormant. So the microbes inside these glass vials are dormant. And we're interested in how dormant cells can survive over very long periods of time. So, for example, Jana Hinners, who's another postdoc in the Institute of Evolutionary Biology, for her PhD project, looked at um, dormant spores of a dinoflagellate, which is a type of phytoplankton within the ocean, um, And she specifically was looking at the cells within the Baltic Sea and seeing how dormant spores that were uh, deposited a few years ago compared to 100 years ago, how they respond to changes in temperature. And so that provides information about how um, phytoplankton can respond to climate change. Do spores from 100 years ago respond more poorly to temperature changes compared to um, dinoflagellate spores today? that have obviously been evolving through the industrial era. Um, So that is um, on a sort of smaller scale, but then on a much larger scale, we know that bacteria can survive um, for very long periods of time. The oldest record, which is controversial, but is around 250 million years. And so they've survived inside inclusions in Permian salt crystals. And What's an inclusion, sorry? Oh, an inclusion is just within the actual crystal, you have small pockets of liquid mm-hmm. that essentially have been trapped inside the mineralization process. And so they can survive inside that really salty liquid. Cool. Um, yeah. And within other geological environments, um, you can have um, bacteria that will survive in oil reservoirs, okay? And so they're sitting there dormant until a mining company will come along and inject um, uh, mining fluids or injection fluids into those oil reservoirs, providing nutrients to allow these dormant cells to to revive. And that can then have implications for oil recovery. Mm -hmm. Um, So that obviously is like an economic impact. And then within astrobiology, we're interested in dormant cells because the 
geological and climatic history of Mars was very different to what it is today. It was potentially much more habitable. And so uh, Martian life that could have been thriving a billion years ago could today be either completely extinct or really driven down into levels of dormancy. And so understanding how microbes can survive dormancy potentially provides us with information about how life could have survived on other planetary bodies such as Mars or Europa. Okay, so we've got a climate change aspect to it and an astrobiology aspect, kind of very loosely. Yeah. Okay, no, that's really cool. Um, so, so you're measuring the the dormancy and the mutations, or? So you're measuring viability um, of dormant cells. So, what you've actually got are uh, liquid cultures of cells that have been dried down, and so you have around a million um, cells. Okay. Um, yeah, sort of 100,000 to a million cells that are within these glass vials. And what we can do is, after a set amount of time, break those vials open, resuspend the cells, and then plate them out. And then by counting the number of colony-forming units or the number of colonies that are on the agar plates, you can then determine how many cells were actually alive or able to, to be alive and grow uh, within those vials. And so we can see how that has changed then from when we started compared to now. Oh, cool. Okay, now that makes sense. Um, how do you choose the bacteria that you use? So this whole experiment um, was inspired by my PhD supervisor, who back in the early 2000s was a researcher with the British Antarctic Survey. And he was in the Canadian high Arctic looking at a, what are called endolithic cyanobacteria. And so they are just bacteria that actually live inside the rocks. So they live okay. within uh, the pore spaces between grains. Um, and they live there because it shields them from UV, okay. um, which is a problem in the high Arctic, but provides them with enough light for photosynthesis. So it's sort of like ideal habitat for them. And so he was working with these organisms and he cultured them onto agar plates. And then he was packing them into boxes to take back to the British Antarctic Survey in Cambridge. And they got left in a cupboard and were forgotten. <laughs> and then he moved from there to the Open University where they were not reopened. And he was there for six years. And then in mm -hmm. 2012, moved to Edinburgh, where they were eventually opened up. And at this point, the agar, if you're familiar with what an agar disc looks like, you know, in a Petri dish, it's sort of maybe a centimetre, a couple of centimetres mm -hmm. thick. At this point, it was like less than a millimetre, these like really <laughs> thin, papery agar discs with dried cells on. And so I was like, I wonder if anything has actually survived on these things. So he yeah. cut a little bit up, put it in some liquid media, and stuff grew. Um, so that was a 10-year period that he knew they'd survived for. But the immediate question that came to his mind was, as I don't know how many cells started on there, I then can't talk about viability. I can't talk about how many have survived compared to how many were inoculated on the plate originally. Um, and so that was a bit of an inspiration point for... Um, the 500-year microbiology experiment. And the cyanobacterial species he was working with was called Crococci diopsis, which from <laughs> now on I'm going to call croc, just for shortening. Yeah, and um, the other species we're working with is called Bacillus subtilis, mm -hmm. which is a model organism of bacteria that is specifically studied for sporulation. So vegetative, or what you might consider as normal cells actively growing in a culture, um, can form these much smaller cells that are really hardy and can resist um, extreme stress, such as extreme temperatures or desiccation being dried out. 
Mm. Um, so that was done in collaboration with our partners at the um, German Aerospace Research Center or DLR, um, where they provided the spores and have done some of the analysis on those spores since for us. Cool. Uh, and how did you get involved in this experiment then? So I guess you're a PhD supervisor? Yeah, exactly. So I was a PhD student at the UK Centre for Astrobiology, and my um, supervisor was the director of that centre, and I was working on something completely different. Um, but I had been working with cyanobacteria on a much shorter project beforehand, mm -hmm. and I um, essentially just jumped to the opportunity to, to do something more astrobiologically focused than my project at the time. It was a good way to integrate myself into the group and to do something sort of cool and exciting on the side of my main project. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, that's how I got involved. What draws you to astrobiology? Oh, that's a really... Okay, so I think I'm going to answer with a quote that I heard at a conference when I first started, which is, you can describe astrobiology as three questions, which is, where have we come from? Where are we, where are we now? And where are we going? And okay. I think what I like about astrobiology is... Unlike a specific scientific discipline that has astrobiology answers these really grand questions, which you can answer from a lot of different viewpoints. So within astrobiology, you have people like myself as microbiologists, but you have people that are hunting for exoplanets. You have people that are looking at the rock record of the Archaean and looking at how biogeochemical changes change the structure of the rocks. Mm -hmm. And so when you... When you get involved with astrobiology research, you just get bombarded with science from so many different fields, and that's super yeah. exciting. So you're not necessarily just in it to find life on Mars? No. Uh, that is something which, obviously, you'd have heard a lot about in the news, and it's been super exciting. There's been a lot of developments in that. But uh, astrobiology is very wide and all-encompassing. There's a lot of uh, different things that come to play in it. So what have you found so far in this experiment? Has any results come out of it yet or is it still? Well, it's still very early days. So the experiment um, essentially is broken into time points. So for the first 24 years, every two years, a small subset of vials will be broken up and or broken and the samples are suspended and plated out as described. So, so far, the experiment was started in 2014. So we've had two time points in 2016 and 2018. So there's been no loss of viability for either species, Yay! which is good um, <laughs> so far. But uh, yeah, it's obviously still very early days. I think that really the first interesting results from this experiment are probably going to be around the 25 year mark. Right, That's okay. going to be a, um, a sort of record for a laboratory Dormant, dormancy study okay. um, as opposed to just taking dormant cells from the environment. Right, so. sure. Do you think it will really go on for 500 years? Or? Yeah, this is setting up a 500 year experiment is um, sort of semi ridiculous, really, isn't it? Because <laughs> so many things could happen between now and when is the, the final? Uh, well, it's 2514, right, is when the experiment ends. Sweet. Um, yeah. But I think even if it reaches 100 years, that would already be quite exciting. Yeah. I look forward to when I retire and I'm going to find out whoever has this experiment. The experiment is actually in two halves. So there's one at the University of Edinburgh, 
looked after by my supervisor, Charles Cacao. And the other one is at the Natural History Museum. So okay. that's curated by some of the scientists there. Is that in London? Yes, Natural sorry, yeah, the Natural History Museum in London. So I'm really hoping that in my 70s, I'm able to email some of the Natural History Museum and, and check that someone has actually dug the box out and done yeah. the time point and uh, reminded someone to do that and see what the results are. That would be exciting. Yeah, I was going to say, who... Um... Is there somebody in charge of making sure that all the time points happen? Because people move around so much, right? Well, exactly. So this is um, one of the great difficulties. Well, this is one actually one of the things that I find most exciting about this project is just the sheer scale of it, just the sheer um, ambition to try and do something on this scale. When you have funding periods provided by research councils of three, five, if you're lucky, 10 years, Trying to design something on the 100-year time scale is just very yeah. difficult. Who is going to coordinate that? For example, who's going to organise when the time points are done and to ensure that they're done? Um, at the moment, it's pretty much the responsibility of my supervisor oh, good. and uh, his contacts at the Natural History Museum. Mm -hmm. But then when he retires and he passes this on, yeah, it's very much up in the air as to how that will happen. Um, and I think this actually asks a, a whole series of interesting questions of how you how you do long-term science. How is that done? So, for example, um, at uh, Michigan State University, um, there is a long-term experiment looking at um, seed viability. Okay. So there was a, I forget his name now, William Beale was his name, um, in the late 1800s, mm -hmm. um, took seeds from 24 species and put seeds and sand in bottles, buried them upside down, in the botanical garden and then every five years and then later 10 years and then later 20 years those bottles get opened up planted into soil and they see what grows right um so that experiment is already over 100 years old right okay. um and so that's managed by uh, the botanical garden that has a curator um who's able to oversee that but other than these long-term institutions like botanical gardens like yeah. um, the natural history museum Within universities, how can we facilitate maintaining uh, these long experiments and making them productive and producing interesting science? Yeah. I wonder how many other fields would benefit from really long-term research. Yeah. I think, I think there's a lot of interesting questions which just currently can't be addressed in the way that we fund science. And yeah, trying to find a way to do that, I think, is uh, definitely a way forward. Okay, so, well, I was going to ask what's next for this experiment, but I suppose the next time point, when, when yeah. is that? So 2020 will be the okay. next time point. Um, but already there's been a couple of publications that we have um, written and put out there just describing the experiment. The last thing we want is for this experiment to be forgotten, yeah. to be buried <laughs> at the back of some cupboard somewhere in the university. Yeah. Um, so at least if we've written something, people will know about it and know yeah. it's there and maybe, just maybe, we'll chase it up um, and ensure that it keeps going. Yeah. Um, and the results of the first time point for the Bacillus subtilis have been published um, with um, other long-term studies, essentially, in, in one collected paper. Um but um, me and my supervisor are thinking of, or PhD supervisor, are thinking of writing something in the sort of near future, just publishing the results of both species, maybe for the first two or three time points, just so that there is a uh, published baseline of data then to compare back to, say, in 25 years or 50 years time. Sure. Who, who gets to actually take the samples? Is it whoever's... 
So PhD student is there at the time? Yeah, or? at the moment. So I did the first time points and then I think the second time point was done by a postdoc in Charles's lab, Rosa, mm-hmm. um, and then also by um, our collaborators at DLR, so that's Ralph Muller and his PhD students and postdocs. Mm-hmm. And then whoever is performing that at the Natural History yeah. Museum, I'm actually not sure. Is that like, is there much contingency? Isn't if you if you screw up one vial, is there Well, so there's, there's <laughs> there are triplicate vials per time points. Okay. Um, and actually, um, so one, you can basically break down the sort of main overarching questions of the project into, into three questions themselves. So the first one is the effect of background radiation mm-hmm. on um, the survival of dormant cells. So... We all know that when you go to the beach on a hot day, you're told to wear suntan cream so that you don't burn, okay? Yeah. Because radiation causes damage to skin cells and specifically as well to DNA. And this can occur, but on um, a wider scale caused by background radiation. Mm-hmm. So this comes from um, a variety of sources, including naturally occurring radioactive materials. This can be within rocks or within sand. There was a postdoc in, my, uh, in the lab that I did my PhD in that actually went out to Brazil to um, take samples of sand that had naturally naturally radioactive material. And these beaches um, were where Brazilians would go and bury themselves to cure things like cancer and other illnesses. And so she'd go to this beach and there were all these people buried up to their heads, (laughs) all sitting there enjoying the the radioactive treatment. How effective that really is, is uh, maybe a bit dubious. But um, yeah, these materials are all around us. And so... One of the difficulties um, of being in of being desiccated, which is what our our uh, vials are, desiccated cells, is that they're unable to repair the damage done by this background radiation. Okay. In normal working conditions of a cell, in sort of happy conditions, they have all these molecular mechanisms and enzymes that can repair this damage. So, the experiment is actually um, duplicated within each box. So you have a set of cultures that are within cardboard boxes and they're therefore just exposed to background radiation. And another set of cultures which are within cardboard boxes lined within lead boxes. Right, okay. And that lead cuts out the background radiation. So looking at the effect of background radiation on um, dormant cell survival is one mm-hmm. aspect of the experiment. And then I would say like the main aspect of the experiment is being able to provide a mathematical model which describes the loss of viability over time. Mm -hmm. So to sort of put that into simpler terms, you can imagine that you have, um, at the beginning, a million cells and all of them are alive, okay? And after, say, 50 years, we could have seen that most of them die, 95% die. And so we just have this 5% of persister cells. Okay. Okay, so if you're looking on the y-axis of your graph, there's going to be a sort of short period where nothing happens, then a massive drop, and then it just keeps going along on the x-axis with no real change on the y. Or you could imagine something where most of the cells survive for a really long time. So say for the first 250 years, you know, you've got 95, 90% viability, and they're accruing this damage to their DNA over time or to other components of the cell. And suddenly that damage reaches a critical level. Mm -hmm. And so you then get a huge drop in viability. And so now you've got down to, again, that 5% level. 
Um, or we could have something more complicated than that, where you get something like a sigmoidal function, where they're fine, say, for a period, and then there's a decline, and then that decline sort of uh, decreases, right? It becomes less significant until you get to, again, a level of persister cells. Or you could just have a simple straight line. Maybe they're just that, that loss of viability is going to be the same over a very long period. Yeah. And the interesting thing is we have absolutely no idea what that function, that mathematical function, what that graph looks like. Um, and so that's one of the real questions of the project. What will that relationship look like? And the final one is that we actually have a whole bunch of additional samples within this box other than the vials. Mm -hmm. So uh, we reproduced some of those original agar discs that were drying down and included some of those. We also produced some, uh, what you might describe as like artificial endoliths. So we took some um, scintillated um, discs, which essentially just like uh, small tic-tac looking like things that are basically a, a compacted grains of silica. Mm -hmm. And so we then grew some of these endolithic cyanobacteria inside these and included those in the experiment as well. And so what we've given future scientists essentially is a small laboratory of samples to play with and essentially do whatever they like with. Yeah. But we have a few suggestions of what they could do. Um, for example, if Martian life did once exist, but no longer exists, what rovers such as Curiosity is looking for now, and what future rovers such as Mars 2020 and ExoMars will be looking for are what are called biosignatures. Essentially, that's just molecules that were made by biological life that we can detect and see a signature in them of life, that we can distinguish those molecules from non-living non -living molecules. So this would be stuff like DNA and proteins and lipids. And what we don't know is over the timescales of 500 years, is how they degrade and whether some will be uh, more resistant to degradation compared to others. And so more complicated analyses like using FTIR or Raman spectroscopy could be used to investigate the degradation of these compounds and see if some molecules form better biomarkers or biosignatures compared to others. Oh, sorry, these are just different techniques to be able to um, chemically characterise molecules. So FTIR stands for Fourier Transformed Infrared Spectroscopy. Um, and Raman spectroscopy, is, Raman is just the name of the person who um, invented it, discovered it. So it's not that it looks like noodles? No, no, it's not that it looks like noodles. Cool. Uh, so I think that's it for the science questions. Uh, is there anyone else that you haven't mentioned that you want to mention that's like contributed to this work or...? Yeah, I'd like to acknowledge the undergraduate students who I actually worked with, who actually made these samples. So um, that was Ellen Sachs and Marissa Mayer and India Rose Friswell. Um, and so basically they were with me in the lab preparing these cultures, aliquoting them all out into these hundreds of vials. There were actually, I think in total, 1,600, something like that. So a lot of vials. <laughs> And they all had to go into desiccators with these, um, like when you buy new shoes and there's like normally a little packet of silica mm. beads. Yeah. Thousands of those beads inside a container. Yeah. And they suck up all the moisture. And so just um, getting all those cultures desiccated and then sealing the glass ampules. Essentially, it's like a small sort of glass cylinder 
which you then heat in the middle and then you use tongs to then pull it apart and that hermetically seals it. Um, So there was a lot of waiting and a lot of burns and they put in a lot of hard work. So yeah, thank you to them. Nice. Uh, Let's go on to some personal stuff now. So um, the first thing I'd say is what advice would you give to past you if you were starting your PhD again or at any point actually really? (laughs) (laughs) I would say that doing science is about 50% or maybe more than 50% just being persistent. Um, And sometimes that comes across as a little daunting. Um, But for example, I started my PhD in 2013 and my funding ran out at the end of 2016. I ended up submitting my thesis in September 2017, defending it in my Viva that December, and then finally publishing the last version in April the year after and graduating later that year. And last month, I published my first data paper for my PhD. So this is April 2019, for those listening in at a later date. And I actually got another article accepted yesterday. So the Congratulations. Thank you. Yes. Uh, So it's exciting. But the point is that here we are in May 2019 and having started in October 2013, it took me a long time to feel like I made a success of my PhD. And I think a lot of the time you can be quite far in and feel like, oh, it's just, you know, I've been working so hard and yet I've got very little to show for it at this point. And that obviously depends upon PhDs. That's the other thing I wanted to say is that it is very difficult sometimes to stop yourself comparing your progress with the progress of someone else. Mm other people in your department, other people you know doing PhDs. And what I would say to myself when I started my PhD is that every PhD is different and stop comparing yourselves to others. You'll get there in the end. Just keep working hard and it will be all right. That seems like good advice, yeah. Um, I'm going to go for something a bit lighter now. Mm -hmm. Uh, Here you have pets. I do, yeah. Please tell me about your pets. So I have a cat called Houdini and I have a dog called Luna. And Luna is a, oh, she's two and a half now. um, And she's a Staffordshire Bull Terrier, which if you know anything about Staffies, they are full of energy and full of beans. And (laughs) they are great, but they're like a lot of work. Um, But I love her. She's great. It gets me outdoors. That's actually a good thing. If you uh, can make it happen in your life, having a dog and doing research is really good because sometimes it can be quite stressful. And having a dog that you can go run around with and be crazy with is, uh, yeah, a great way to let off some steam. How do how do you balance, um, well, having responsibility of any kind <laughs> as well as a PhD, but I mean specifically like pets? I actually think being a PhD student, obviously it depends on your own supervisor and uh, the way that you work, but... Being in academia provides you with a lot of flexibility for that. Mm. Um, So if my pets have been ill, I've been able to go to the vet and that's not been a big deal. I've just come in later and then work slightly later or work at another time to catch up. Um, And so actually, I think that uh, getting a pet is one of the the more feasible things you can do as a PhD student compared to many of the other people you graduated with that are off doing other, other different jobs and careers. What are you doing now? I am a postdoctoral research associate um, with Dr. Sinead Collins. So what we're investigating is how phytoplankton will respond to uh, global change. Specifically, I'm looking at diatoms. 
So these are phytoplankton that are encased in small glass shells. Um, and they form the basis of the food chain in the Southern Ocean. They provide food to krill and the krill provide food to the whales. Everyone's seen the David Attenborough documentary. You know what I'm talking about. Um, so I've taken or I've taken my uh, supervisor, Sinead, and collaborators at the University of Rhode Island sailed out um, to the Southern Ocean back in 2016 and collected lots of seawater samples, did lots of filtering to filter out these tiny diatoms, brought them back. And now we're determining how they respond to changes in temperature. And we're going to use what's called experimental evolution to actually evolve them in the laboratory in real time to see how they're going to respond to different um, different types of warming, whether that's um, sudden warming or gradual warming, to try and tease apart the evolutionary processes that are allowing these organisms to adapt in the natural environment. That sounds really cool. So that's more on like a the climate change end of things. Then. Yeah, for sure. Um, what made you decide to pursue academia after your PhD? I considered a lot of different options when I was finishing. Um, and I think that's a healthy thing to do as well. I ended up looking at um, a variety of different roles in teaching within industry and then also within academia. And the reason I chose the current position was because it was, um, the well, to start with, the most exciting position I found. Uh, yeah. It was a really interesting project. I'm a very environmentally focused person and this project was very environmentally focused. But in my previous role, uh, where I was working as a research assistant, again, on an experimental evolution project, I was getting to bring some of those skills I'd already developed into my new role. So that was like very appealing to me. Um, so that's essentially why I chose what I'm doing now. And yeah. Just pure excitement. Yeah, I think as well um, that although there are some um, insecurities with remaining in academia, obviously, you know, you're going from short term contracts, two to three years. Doing active research still really excites me and something that I really wanted to pursue. Yeah. Um, and I'm not sure if I'm going to want to do research forever. I think at some point I might consider doing other options or taking other options. But for now, yeah, I'm very happy with what I'm doing. Uh, so finally, what have you learned about yourself, if anything, <laughs> during your PhD? What I learned about myself is that I can be very stubborn when I want to be. <laughs> um, so when you're doing a PhD or when you're doing research in general, you spend a lot of time learning new stuff, whether that's new techniques, whether that's new knowledge. And that's really exciting, can be a lot of fun, but it can also be exhausting. And so there are times when if I have an opportunity to use existing knowledge or existing skills to do something, maybe rather than learn a new way that might be more efficient or might actually be better than the way that I'm used to doing it, I require some coercion to learn to do that new thing. And I think that's quite a maybe natural human, human response um, to an environment where you're learning all the time. And obviously that's really stupid. What I should be doing is learning all these new techniques and learning all these new skills while I have the chance. And so sometimes I think what I've learned about myself is how to coerce myself, how to convince myself to, to tackle that challenge when my instinct is to go, oh, but you already know a, another way of doing it. Um, but actually that's, um, 
something that I've been able to do recently. I've learned how to use R for all those R users out there. Nice. Um, and that was a very steep learning curve for me, but it's really paid off and I've really enjoyed learning it. Cool. Uh, I think that's all we've got time for today. So thank you very much for taking the time to come and speak to us. No worries. Thank you for inviting me. Now, as we release this episode, there is a topic that will be at the forefront of many final year students' mind. Graduation. While for most people, these days, graduation is the opportunity to be with family, party with friends, and revel in the fruits of many years' labor. There was a time when even the act of graduation was an act of rebellion. I would like to introduce you to the first female graduate to receive a Bachelor of Science from the University of Edinburgh, Crystal Macmillan. Born and raised in Scotland, Macmillan grew up in the late 1800s, at the time when women were openly discouraged from pursuing higher education or other jobs outside of the household. Through the efforts of the Edinburgh Seven and a burgeoning feminist movement pushing for equality in education, Mike Millen was able to enroll in the University of Edinburgh in 1892, studying math and natural philosophy. Following four years of study, she graduated in 1896 with a first-class honor B.Sc. Like many students today, she actively engaged in politics and was a keen member of the national suffragette movement. Her time at the university nurtured her political passion, leading to her re-enrollment in the university to study moral philosophy and logic, graduating with second-class honors in 1900. In 1908, Macmillan gained further publicity. And she became the first woman to address the House of Lords in Westminster. Due to the rising activism of the suffragette movement at the time, there was a legal ban on women in Parliament, which was specifically lifted so that Macmillan could address the House. In her address, she simply argued that in voting law, the term "persons" should be interpreted to include women. While her proposals to the House were rejected, her speech gained the attention of the press and thus the nation. Building on this momentum, she engaged in international women's suffrage action and campaigned as a pacifist in World War One, working to become a key member of the International Congress of Women, a group whose proposals she presented to the U.S. President. Woodrow Wilson in 1915. From her time in Edinburgh as a suffragette to fighting on the international stage against world leaders, Crystal Macmillan is a distinguished alumna with a building here and the university named in her honor. Unlike the opposition she faced throughout her career, her legacy and her ideas clearly stand the test of time. Thank you for listening to Biopod. If you're interested in the full interview from Toby, want to learn more about Crystal Macmillan, or simply want to read up on what we covered here today, please check out our Twitter and Biopod Edinburgh, or our website online.
See you next month.